I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I am often asked who would be the person I'd most like to see walk through the doors of the River Cafe. I usually say Nelson Mandela, but he's not coming. So then it really depends on what I'm reading, watching, or listening to. For months, the top of my list has been Scott Galloway, whose Prof G podcast is where I go to be informed and inspired. Scott opens up subjects I hardly know about, tech, entrepreneurism, social media, AI, financial markets up and down, and yesterday, actually, something I do know about, olive oil. But this is not just what compelled me to invite him to lunch when I heard he'd moved to London. It was that this professor of marketing at the New York University Stern School of Business gives his salary back to the university and talks about loneliness, isolation, connection, and belonging. He worries about the disenfranchised and lonely young men. Scott is tough, and he's direct, but he's compassionate, he's honest, and he's probing. And that is a person who I'm listening to most these days, and who has just walked through the doors of the River Cafe to sit down with me at table four. Ruthie, um, so that is, this is absolutely a first. I have never had my name mentioned in the same sentence as Nelson Mandela. <laughs> I, I, I think you set an impossibly high bar. You don't hear Nelson Mandela and Scott Galloway a lot, but it's great to be with you. I realize that you're interviewing me, but I just have a couple of things I want to, uh, I want to get off my chest. I didn't realize that you're literally the most powerful person in the world. Anyone I meet who's who's powerful is like, oh yeah, I'm coming to London and I'm staying with Ruthie or I'm seeing Ruthie. You oh, literally yeah. know everybody. Yeah. And also, um, uh, just a quick story. You did something that was very impactful. And I don't know if you know what this is, but we had never met. I was regretting accepting the lunch invitation. I didn't know the River Cafe. I didn't know you. It just popped up on my calendar and I got there and you're lovely. And obviously I found out this is an iconic establishment. And I don't know if you remember this, but about 20 or 30 minutes into the lunch, I was talking, I think I was talking about my sons and you just very casually held my hand. And it was at first kind of shocking and a bit rattling. And you did it two or three more times throughout the lunch. And by the end of the lunch, I was not only comfortable with it, but I was really moved by it. And I thought, I wish more people had the confidence to express that sort of affection um, physically. And it taught me that uh, I, I, that was the most impactful thing about our lunch, that this person who I had never met before had the confidence and the affection to like hold my hand. It really sort of stilled me. I kind of do remember because I was a little scared um, that you were, you'd actually accepted the invitation and that you were coming. And I suppose I wanted to, I don't know, it was like a, a first quite meeting, but it was over food. It was in the restaurant. I wanted you, I guess I wanted to impress you. I wanted it to be good. And 
um, I remember we talked, and then I think I asked you advice. And again, you were just so focused on it. You just kind of talked to me in a way that really engaged. And and I was very touched by that. And so maybe that was, for me, an important moment, and then reaching out for your hand. Um, I don't remember doing it, but I guess I did. And if I did, it was because I, at that point I felt comfortable. Well, for whatever reason, very few people feel that comfort with me. So it really stood out and I, oh. I loved it. I would tell you to continue okay. to do it. Okay, well, come over. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing this afternoon? <laughs> Anytime. That's right. That's right. I, I like that. So um, I don't know how food connects with your world, but we might try and find that out. Um, in this conversation, because for me, having doing these podcasts is getting to know somebody through food. And it can be a senator, it can be a footballer, it can be a rock star, it can be somebody I met on the beach in Mexico. And when you start talking about food, maybe it brings up memory. So I was thinking about, you know, your mother, which I know you talk about your mother, you talk about her in, 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 your podcast when you're talking at night. And I was wondering about connection uh, as a child. So I was very, I, I do a lot of this. I, I'm a guest on a lot of podcasts. And I was, I think, more self-conscious about this one than um, most, if not all of them, because the reality is, Ruthie, is I'm not a foodie. Um, and food is almost, I don't want to call it a tax, but uh my mother, I was raised by a single mother. We didn't have a lot of money. She worked full-time as a secretary and was British. So it wasn't exactly like <laughs> fantastic. It, food, I, I joke, with food was punishment in my household. We used to, every Sunday night, she'd make a big vat. She was very busy. It was just the two of us. She'd make a big vat of shepherd's pie and then freeze it. And every day or five in the next seven nights when I get home from school, I would put a slice of this frozen shepherd's pie in a microwave that felt like it was Chernobyl before it exploded. And so I, I didn't grow up with what I'll call real inspired food. In addition, I think I suffer a little bit from body dysmorphia. I, I don't, I have trouble, and no one's going to feel sorry for this. I have trouble keeping weight on, so I've always had to eat more. I was an athlete when I was younger. My coaches always said one thing, you need to gain weight. So I think I'm probably going to win the award for the less the least foodie person on this podcast. I, and I was thinking about what if she asked me what are my favorite restaurants? I don't go to restaurants. I don't go for the food. I go for the environment. And food for me is like wine. It tops out at about 30 bucks a bottle. I just don't have that refined palate. So I go to places that have good food, but I'm more about the environment and a place that I'll enjoy being. But I'm not, you know, my, anyways, going back to your original question, on Sunday nights in college, I lived at home for the first year, and I used to come home. I, I call it I, I came home, and that is when I was 16 and 17, I did what most young men did, and that is I started to be a bit of a jerk to my mother, or I was just rebelling. And I wasn't mean, but there's a biological and an anthropological catalyst that makes it easier for kids to leave the household, and that is when they turn into teens, they become unbearable, and it makes it easier for everybody. And then I kind of came home when you're like 19 or 20, you realize, you know, it's me and my mom against the world. She was the only person who was irrationally passionate about my well-being. And I, and I used to go home a lot. And she'd always cook for me. 
And it'd always be the same thing. Did she make? She'd always make a roast. Yeah. And a roast and potatoes, very British. And I think that's probably why I love meat and potatoes so much. But that was where food sort of turned to love for me. That was the one place. Yeah. And when you were going back to the shepherd's pie that you heated up in the microwave, and you know, I have to say that I, obviously I love people who cook. I love the idea of cooking for our children. I like the idea of sitting down to a meal, but I really have a lot of respect and admiration for women who don't, you know, who have, you know, they might, they might have to work that night and not be able to cook. Or they might have not have the money or they might not, not know how to. And and so I, I don't judge. I'm not one of those people that says, oh, everything should be fresh and everything should be picked locally. And, you know, I, I, it's what I do. But I, I don't think it's politically or socially or morally right to, to put that pressure on people who can't do it or don't know how to do it. Where was your mom? Was she, she was working at night or did she, was she doing something else? My mom worked um, pretty hard, uh, lived and died as secretary, but obviously she was the only, you know, it was just me and her. She was a sole breadwinner and she had to commute, drive into the San Fernando Valley. So she had sort of an hour plus commute every, each way. And, but I did get exposure to, I did get exposure to wonderful food. My best friend, Adam Markman, his mother, Devorah Markman, was one of these people who just, went into a kitchen and it was like watching an F1 driver get into an automobile. She was just so one with the kitchen. And the way she expressed love was I would walk through the door and Adam and I would walk through the door and she'd just start, whether she wouldn't ask us if we were hungry, she'd just start cooking. And it was just such obvious like affection for her and she was so wonderful at it. And I remember for the first time thinking, wow, this tastes, this salad tastes really good. Like, what did she do here? But yeah, that, that uh, you know, it, it what was... What did she cook? Do you, remember, do you remember what she actually cooked? Do you remember the oh, food? Oh, she would make things like I had never heard of, like salmon, you know, in with some special sauce. And she'd make like a wonderful Caesared salad that would have pieces of grapefruit in it. And I never thought that, oh, you know, you, when you're a kid, you don't make the connection that pieces of grapefruit would go in a salad. And she would make vegetables that were tolerable, like green beans with with with... Uh, with 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 little shaved almonds, like uh, you start figuring out when you're that age, when you're at fourteen or fifteen, food starts to create this notion of alchemy. That strange things, unexpected things that come together, that one plus one can equal three. But it was mostly again about affection. Um, that you know, my best friend's mom would just that was we walked through the door, and I didn't realize it till later in life. But that's how she expressed affection when she would start cooking. And what about your mom? Did she, if she didn't do it through food, or do you, did you, maybe when she was making that huge shepherd's pie on a Sunday night, that was an act of love, you know, for her kid who was going to come home most nights and find something to eat? Always a million things, uh, you know, Ruthie. The, you know, I talk about this a lot on my podcast. I'm a 59 year old mo- uh, man whose, whose mother died 20 years ago, and I'm still not over it. And, the, um, you know, it was, it was a million things. I wouldn't, I don't think food is one of those ways, but you know, my mom every morning used to come in and wake me up and she would be like, she'd in a very hushed voice, she'd go, Scott, Scott, like trying to wake me up gently. And you know, only a mother does that. And, and when I look back on it, uh, I've, I've registered remarkable success, uh, and prosperity, uh, and the, the two catalysts for that, or the, if I look at the two reasons for that, is one, the generosity of California taxpayers that gave me a free accessible education at UCLA and Berkeley and started an upward spiral for me professionally. 
and also what any successful person has in their life. And that is they had someone in their life that was irrationally passionate about their well-being. I was more important to my mom than she was to herself. And that, that got expressed a million little ways every day. But how do you feel about your children? Is food something that you think about expressing love? Well, I have, I have a partner and a spouse that's an outstanding cook, and she absolutely demonstrates love for all of us. And I always say to her, when I, she wakes me up in the morning and makes me breakfast, makes the kids breakfast, you know what it's like. The, the, look, the moments we're going to remember the rest of our lives, I think for most of us that are blessed with healthy, you know, reasonable kids, you're going to remember those little nights at the banquet, eating dinner with them or roaming around a foreign place with them, with them complaining, you know, but those are the moments. That's I was, what I say to my wife is, I'll say to her, I'll say, I feel loved. And it's usually in the context of the four of us walking around some strange city together, or quite frankly, when she, she cooks for me and the boys. Um, so that is, uh, I, I don't cook, uh, but yeah, it's, it, food is now a big part of our household and a very healthy part of our household. And one of the things I love about London that I've noticed, for all the grief London gets about, food. A, the food, I've been coming here two to five times a year for, for 50 years. It's gotten much better. And two, the groceries, I think, are actually healthier here. Uh, less preservatives. That's my sense. My sense is there's less crap and pesticides and hormones in them. So I've actually really enjoyed. I love cooking at home. For me, cooking at home means I'm at home, means I'm with people that I love and love me immensely. And so it's just like it feels right. When I'm eating out, it's usually because I'm on the road. And it's wonderful. I'm, I, I eat in wonderful places, but cooking at home means I'm with the people who care about me. Yeah. Somebody asked me the best restaurant in London, other than River Cafe. They said, "What's the best restaurant?" I always say home. You know, you know. I, I like being home, and I like cooking at home. And when my children come or my kids come, there's a, in our, you know, some of my grandchildren just want the same thing that they always have. Well, there I have this restaurant and I cook all these things and it's like pasta with tomato sauce and Tuscan roast potatoes and ice cream. You know, there's something that your memory, and that's what I think it does. So starting out with saying that you're going to be my guest on a podcast about food without, you know, any interest. We've already talked about food and your mother and food and your kids and food and your wife and, you know, and home. So it, it is meaningful, isn't it? I mean, it does have a place in our lives. hundred uh, percent. I don't, you know, we, this is something we, yeah, I think it would be impossible to ignore. It's how we spend time together. It's how we care for each other. It's moved from something we did for survival to something that's more about community. It's a way of expressing generosity. You know, I'm really into dogs and I, my, my, I now see that my dogs occasionally when they first, when they were first together and introduced to each other, they used to guard their food and get angry at each other. And now, occasionally, they share their food. <laughs> it's, it's kind of how they express love. Like, okay, I'm accepting you as part of the pack or the the herd or whatever the term is. But yeah, it's um absolutely and anything that brings us together that we can share in that requires artisanship and skill and where you're giving something to someone else and you can celebrate it. Yeah, I think I mean, it, there's just no getting around it. And you're going to forget more about this than I'm ever going to know. I think it also talks about culture, doesn't it? You're describing walking around a foreign city with your kids. And yeah, the image of that is of keeping them safe, being together, and then experience. I don't know if you do when you travel, but do you enjoy travel? Do you like going to a, a, a city that is mysterious or you have to learn about? Are you, are you an explorer or do you, do you prefer home? 
Oh, I do. And, and I'm fortunate that, you know, now we get to do a lot of wonderful things with our kids uh, and we go to great places. Um, I spent so much time kind of molesting the earth because of my, what I did professionally. I think I've been on the road probably 150 plus days a year for the last 30 years. And I'm slowing down now since COVID. I've decided I'm not going to travel as much. But yeah, I mean, it's very simple. Do I enjoy travel? Are my kids with me? That means, you know, if my kids aren't with me, it's fine. I stay in nice places. I meet interesting people. I I like working. If my kids are with me, it means it's going to be a lot of highs and a lot of lows. <laughs> it's, it's, but the highs are the highs are worth it. But yeah, the the general observation I have around uh, people ask me what's the difference between living in Europe and living in the U.S. I still think the U.S. is the best place to make money, but I think Europe is the best place to spend it. And part of that part of that is food. There's just more of a you walk into a restaurant, people want you to slow down. There is more artisanship around food here. I think it's a bigger part of the culture, generally speaking. Um, but that's part of it. And I'm in a stage in my life where I want to, you know, not slow down a ton, but I do want to slow down. And some of that is is longer meals. I think that when you um, go to, you know, I was in Paris recently and I was staying with a friend, so I bought a sea bass. And um, I was in the car, taxi cab getting there and the taxi driver said you know what have you got and I said oh, I just got a sea bass and he started telling me about the way to cook it and I thought we talk about cities having a culture of food and how Australia is so exciting because of the food culture and LA has a food culture but when you get actually somebody who's just grown up with the smell of a bass and knowing to cook it in a kind of salt or talking about it I think that person has been brought up with a culture of food did your grandmother was she part of your life they weren't in my life they were all gone by the time and my parents and this is a good thing the smartest thing I ever did was being born in America my parents immigrated from Scotland and England uh, when they were when they were young and I was born in San Diego but I didn't have any family around hmm. did your father cook oh no my father was raised in Depression era Scotland and knew nothing, you know, absolutely no. Uh, I think a big part of the reason he's been married and divorced four times is that he couldn't survive without someone taking care of him. And so, no, there was, we're, we're the least, uh, my, at least my immediate family is the least culinary adept family you're probably going to run across. So, no, my father doesn't cook. The River Cafe is excited to announce the return of our Italian Christmas gift boxes. Our alternative to the traditional hamper, they bring you all of our favorites from the River Cafe kitchen, the vineyards, and the designers from all over Italy. They're available to pre-order now on shoptherivercafe.co.uk. BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you left home, you're just describing very movingly coming home to your mother and her making you the roast. But when you were living in apartments or you were you know, just starting out or you had an independence, was... But you just eat out all the time. So food for me, again, food for me growing up, I played sports, but my problem was I was too skinny. And so, like I said, I, my, when I joined crew at UCLA, I was put on a diet where I was supposed to eat eight packs of ramen, six bananas a day, these protein shakes. I was just over, I, they told me you got to massively increase your calorie intake. And <laughs> I joined a fraternity at UCLA, and the fraternity was mostly uh, young men from the San Fernando Valley who came from affluent homes. And during rush week, they would all talk about how awful the food was. And I got there, and I thought the food was amazing. So it's all about your benchmark. Uh, The fact that there was someone cooking for us, and it was like reasonable food, I thought it was just incredible. So I think a lot of it is just your expectations. But my first experience with food was in the fraternity where a woman... Mean Jean, the cooking machine is what we called her. Uh, I remember thinking the food was amazing. Do you remember what it was? Oh, it was really basic. (laughs) I mean, it was like pancakes and pastrami sandwiches. I mean, you're cooking food for 110, 21-year-old men. I mean, this was not, this was not, this was not the River Cafe. This was, this was how do I get these men fed and back to school um, on as little money as possible. And like I said, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I thought the food was amazing. And all, while all my friends from affluent households whose mothers were probably wonderful cooks thought it was just, uh, I thought it was amazing. They did not think so. It's all your benchmark. It's like, what's your secret to a good marriage? Low expectations, right? So, <laughs> I, I don't know. What do you think about low expectations? A friend of mine had trouble with her mother. And I said, well, you know, you're going to visit you know, maybe you should just lower your expectations. And she said, I don't want to. I don't want to lower my expectations. I want those expectations to stay there. I find uh, my relationships got a lot better, um, especially... When you lowered them? 
Well, it's just uh, – so my dad, we haven't talked about my dad. Um, my dad was in what I'd call an especially engaged father, divorced four times, moved away when he and my mom got divorced. I saw him kind of on holidays, not that engaged in my life. But he was also a much better father to me than his father was to him, which when you think about it, that is the basis of evolution. That's yeah. You check a big box when you're better to your kids than your parents were to you because that's that's your model. And I just decided at some point, rather than keeping score around whether my dad could have been a better dad or not, imagine like, what kind of son do I want to be? Yeah. And the answer is I want to be a generous and loving son. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm going to stop keeping score. And I find that stopping putting away the scorecard, whether it's your friends, your mates, your your parents, your relationships get much, much healthier when you decide what kind of friend, partner, spouse, son do I want to be? And put away the scorecard because it's human nature to inflate your contributions and deflate theirs. And so you're always going to be unhappy or, or I think a lot of people would be unhappy. And my life has just gotten so much better when I think to myself, I'd like to be just a generous, awesome friend and be supportive. And if I'm on the right side of, of things, that's okay. If I, if I can contribute more than I get from it. That's nice. Now, if a relationship becomes abusive, you're getting nothing from it. I'm also a big believer in pairing relationships. I don't think you have to collect and always maintain every relationship. But yeah, it's um, the scorecard. I don't want to call it low expectations, but just deciding who you want to be in that relationship and putting away the scorecard has been hugely beneficial to me. Listening to you speak and listening, you know, actually most nights or most mornings, you do really do talk a lot about the importance of love and of friendship. In the restaurant, it's kind of equalizer when somebody comes in and they sit down at the table. And I always say to the waiter, just imagine that somebody might have saved up to come here, or they might have had a loss before they walked in, or they might have gotten lost, or um, there's so many things that happen to in a restaurant that you watch the dynamic of people sitting together. Most people are really grateful for being there. You know, they thank me or they thank the waiter, but... It creates a kind of immediate intimacy, I think, sometimes sitting down and sharing food. I I think your restaurant does. And I do think that small businesses are the closest thing you're going to have to children that aren't, that are inorganic. And that is you conceive them, they look, smell, and feel like you. And your restaurant is sort of a three-dimensional, you know, inorganic version of you, right? And I think people feel that. And I think the successful retail establishments and restaurants all have one thing in common and successful small companies. And that is the owner or the largest shareholder is there uh, observing everything. And I, I feel that. And granted, I'm fond of you, so I'm going to err to the side of, of, of compliments here. But that place feels bright. It feels optimistic. It feels loving. You know, it's kind of you. And those are the businesses that really thrive is you can kind of get a sense for the founder and their DNA I mean, it's the closest thing we have to kids that aren't our kids when you start a business Um, because you're in charge of it. You decide what resources it's going to get or not get. You decide what it's going to kind of look like, what it's going to wear. And then it takes on a life of its own. And some of it you can't control. Sometimes it disappoints you. Sometimes it delights you. But and I didn't have kids till later in life. And I always thought my businesses were the closest thing I had to children in terms of that kind of reward and occasional disappointment. Which business was that meaningful to you? Oh, I started right out of business school. I started a, a strategy firm, and then I started an analytics company, and then I started an e-commerce company. I've started a bunch of companies. Some have worked, some haven't. But 
when you're looking back on them, they really do reflect your personality. I mean, I look at these companies and, and for better or for worse, they were sort of this legal um, corporate embodiment of my values. It, there's just no, and I'm sure that's true of, you know, I think, I think Amazon still very much reflects who Jeff Bezos is. What way? What do you mean? Well, I think he's, I think he's uh, uh, very hard charging. I think he's a very demanding person. Um, I think he's willing to take these in, enormously bold risks. And uh, I think the culture at Amazon very much reflects, reflects him. The Levi Strauss and company, the Haas family, were very paternal and maternal. And the company uh, felt that way. It was the first company to have d- a domestic partner benefits. They refused to segregate their factories. Uh, in the South, they used, to, they used to give people Fridays off in the summer and try and nudge them to spend time with their family. And that was kind of the Haas family. That was the founders. Those were the people in charge. But those values do go through. You know, they do, keeping those values, and how old Levi's is, or, you know, the River Cafe. We started with six tables, and you started about your first business. But you do, once they're there, you really try and keep them there, don't you? You know, but no matter when you grow, and it's harder sometimes the more you grow and the bigger you are, how you keep that. In our place, you know, it, even with the staff, it's also how you feed them. And it's interesting when I talk to people, whether they're making movies or they're working in, you know, hospitals or they're scientists, is how do you, how do you, how do you feed the people who work for you? What kind of food do you give them? How do you make them feel valued by the fact that you're not bringing in cheap food to give them, but you're actually one of the chefs every day in the River Cafe cooks for his colleagues or her colleagues, and it kind of matters. Well, even I was thinking about this before the pod, going up the food chain, when we talk about food, we tend to talk about it in terms of, I don't know, modern societies and situations of opulence or joys. Food takes on a really important meeting in prisons. People who are incarcerated, um, essentially what they've decided is a lot of uh, institutions, penitentiaries have decided the best investment they can make in morale and also decreasing violence isn't food. I didn't know that. Yeah, they, that's, uh, and then in Europe they found out um, cats, <laughs> giving, a, giving a prisoner a cat for good behavior uh, takes violent, makes violent criminals um, much less likely to be violent because they become so attached and it's such an incredible incentive for them. But also um, uh, uh, any incremental improvement in food in a prison, I believe, makes it less likely, uh, uh, less prone to violence. I can believe that and understand it. We've been talking about, um, I met Jamie Oliver. Do you know who Jamie Oliver is? I do, yes. Yeah, and he worked for the River Cafe. You're kidding. He ends a lot of his time, and I'm involved in his, you know, the campaign to give kids food to eat at school. Shocking that you have to qualify for a lunch by your parents. You know, we should all be thinking about how we feed our children. Yeah, you brought up a memory that I thought of. I was in the, I used to leave the fourth period English in the fifth grade early to go work in the cafeteria where I'd serve the kids. You know, you put in the ice cream scooper into the potato salad and I wore, I don't know what you call it, a hairnet. And I'd get free lunch and I would save 55, really? yeah, I would save 55 cents a day. My mom said I could keep the money. I was very focused on money from a very young age. Um, but yeah, it's not, um, I mean, just going to bigger, more important issues we have government policies that basically make sure that seniors never go hungry. And I think that's important. 
um, but we're less concerned about kids going hungry. In the United States, one in five households with kids is food insecure. And we have essentially in the U.S. such an, a, a senior electorate and seniors are s- such a powerful voting block that in a democracy, when you can vote yourself more money, you do. So in the United States, we had a 9% increased cost of living adjustment in Social Security recip- for Social Security recipients, but the child tax credit got stripped out of the infrastructure bill. So if you want to talk about capital and ensuring who gets fed, it's pretty easy. Kids don't vote, and so they don't get the kind of opportunities for healthy food. I mean, they say that the big one of the biggest gaps in academic achievement um, in, in the U.S. is solely a function of kids come to school hungry. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. To go to a completely other thing, your concerns about um, Google and about what the information that we get, it's very crucial to restaurants to have a source that we can, you know, people can find the restaurant on Google Maps, but there is a relationship between that and and how we book tables, how we find it. But what is your feeling about how we control the monopoly? Well, look, I, I'm, I'm a believer that there's too much power in too few hands when it comes to big tech that the fact that you really have no choice but to be on Google and that, you know, the utility is amazing. Google Maps is amazing. TripAdvisor, kind of honest, open reviews is amazing. I think the bigger problem is, you know, your grandkids who have this incentive system to, to put themselves in vulnerable positions or pose in provocative clothing or even be on a, on a social media app where they might get bullied. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there, I mean, you know this. You have your I you do. have your business. You have your 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 friends. You have your kids and your grandkids. Something comes off the tracks with one of your kids, and your whole world shrinks to that kid. Yeah, I've had it and, happen. And yeah. there's just no denying the evidence. My colleague Jonathan Haidt at NYU has done great work here. When social media went on mobile phones, mm-hmm. teen depression exploded. Mm-hmm. And I think when we look back on this era of big tech, which is what you were asking about, I think we'll regret the monopoly power. I think we'll regret some of the abuse of uh, corporate monopolies. I think we'll regret election and vaccine mis- and disinformation. But hands down, Ruthie, the thing we're going to regret most about this era in big tech is we're going to ask ourselves, how did we let that happen to our kids? 
and a little girl can, a 14 year old girl can go into her room and her parents don't know what's going on and she gets bullied online and the algorithms. And then she starts thinking, getting really upset really fast at a very vulnerable age. And boys bully physically and verbally, girls bully relationally, and we put these nuclear weapons in their hands. And just to acknowledge the sexes can be different is considered politically incorrect, but biology does affirm this. The, the girl gets, and this happened, and it's happening all over the world, the gets, girl gets incredibly upset, starts engaging in suicidal ideation or ideas around self-harm, and then the algorithms pick up on this, and no joke, will start sending her images around suicide and affirming these suicidal ideation thoughts. And these organizations don't take responsibility for it because they're monopolies, so they don't have to do anything about it. They have uh, captured our elected representatives with money, so they're not subject to the same liability when these things happen. So our youth is really paying the price for, for what I'll call the big tech Monopoly. Young men are being radicalized on YouTube. Uh, girls are self-harm, self-cutting, have all skyrocketed since social went on mobile. And they will claim that these are difficult problems to represent society, which is just BS. These are problems we could solve. We age gate. I, I can't order a glass of wine if I'm 20 years old in your restaurant. But a 14-year-old girl can go on Instagram? That makes no sense to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. First time I ever saw you was at Alexandra Musaviza Day's um, opening of her company, and you you talked about I thought so well about the fact that it is the government's responsibility to control this. Do is that am I correct? Yeah, I don't think I, I think that we erroneously or naively expect the better angels of big tech leadership to show up at some point, no. and they're focused on profits. They're a for-profit entity. They all want, you know, the people at Altria, the people at Exxon aren't necessarily bad people, but they are going to do whatever they can to make more money and get the share price up that's legal. That is, that is a cornerstone of a capitalist society. But what we've decided is that an auto company shouldn't be able to pour mercury into the river or there should be carbon limits or pesticides should be tested by the FDA. And so we don't imply, we don't apply those same standards to big tech. And to a certain extent, the person that's culpable is the man and the woman in the mirror. And that is until we elect or specifically kick people out of office that aren't implementing a fraction of the laws and regulation and deterrence we have placed across. There's more regulation inside the mic you are speaking into than there is across all of the tech. <laughs> yeah. And uh, think about the regulation in your restaurant around yeah. fire safety, food safety, yeah. Exit signs, well lit, mm. disability, uh, you know, accessible for people with disabilities. Think there, there are there are hundreds, if not thousands, of laws regulating your restaurant because people say we want to prevent a tragedy of the commons, we want to prevent sickness, we want to prevent employee abuse, we want to prevent unnecessary deaths from fire. There's none of that in big tech. None of it. It is literally the Wild West. And it's our fault for not demanding more from our elected representatives. I mean, as, you know, I agree with everything you say. And I, I also, you know, when we, we won't go into Brexit, but, you know, I really welcomed the rules of the EU about the rules we had to follow about cleanliness, about health, about separation of cooked food and raw food. And why wouldn't you want that? You know, I, I thought, bring it on, you know, because if I was just the owner of the restaurant and 
my, you know, it, does, it costs me more money. I have to throw food away. I have to hire more cleaners. I have to get better refrigeration. But that's the deal. That's what we need and want. And so I think in this world, we worry about our kids. We worry about, you know, the future. And sometimes we do need some comfort. It seems like you have a lot of places to go for comfort from your family, from your kids, um, probably your students, uh, your colleagues. But maybe you also get sometimes some comfort from food, Scott. So I was wondering if you do need comfort from food. Is there something that you would go for? I have spent my life pursuing financial security, which is an elegant way of saying it, money relevance, status, experiences, affirmation from strangers. Um, and it was really rewarding and I got a lot of it, but it was never enough. Uh, okay, I'm at an amazing party or New Year's in St. Bart's. Well, I wonder if there's a more awesome place. I'm dating this interesting, attractive woman. Well, is there a more interesting, more attractive woman? I just made a bunch of money selling a company. Well, is there a way I could build a medium-sized company and sell it for a crazy? It was always rewarding, but it was never enough. And the only time I ever feel like, okay, this is enough, is when I'm with my boys and my, my spouse. And oftentimes that's in the context of food. It's not, it's not the food that makes it, quite frankly. I'm not a foodie. But when we're all just sitting there together, uh, whether it's eating breakfast or at a nice place where my kids are rolling their eyes and we're trying to get them to appreciate the surroundings and the food. That is everything we do here, everything we're doing here today, you know, this podcast, uh, trying to make a living, trying to, trying to be relevant. It's all a means. And the ends is deep and meaningful relationships. That's it. Every study on happiness comes down to this across every culture and geography. Do you have friends that make you feel give you a sense of camaraderie? And do they feel a sense of camaraderie from you amongst your uh, work colleagues? Do you have people you respect and admire? And do they respect and admire you? And most importantly, across your family, do you feel an intense level of love and support? And most importantly, do you know they know they are intensely loved and supported? And those moments of still where you think, okay, this might be enough, this is it, oftentimes involve food. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. See you soon. Yeah. Hope so. Come and see me. Yeah. Hope so. I'll hold your hand. Thanks. I'd like that. I'd like that. Are you okay with reading a recipe? I think it's I think it's inorganic. I don't I love that. I don't our think it's necessary. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's a foreign thing into a a flow of conversation. Yeah? Yeah. All right, you're the first person in 92 episodes who didn't read a recipe. So like there that. you go. I like, <laughs> I like it too. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. Thank See you, Ruthie. Bye now. Ruthie's Table 4 is produced by Atomized Studios for iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Ruthie Rogers. It's produced by Willem Malinsky. Our executive producers are Zad Rogers and Faye Stewart. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore. Our production coordinator is Bella Cellini. Special thanks to everyone at the River Cafe. This 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.